Have you ever felt challenged with making life-changing decisions or leading in a public square or simply aligning your thoughts with your actions? Well, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Trust Your Voice podcast. My name is Sylvie Legere, and as a civically engaged entrepreneur and mom, I understand the challenges of advocating for yourself and others while attempting to balance your personal and professional demands. I had to develop a personal system of success in every area of my life, and now I want to help you build your unique system and truly trust your voice, even and especially when it shakes. By the end of each episode, you'll be energized to spark your creative leadership, make purposeful connection, and confidently prioritize the matters that bring you the most joy. So let's start the show. Welcome to the show. Today's episode is about decoding behavioral economics to find the keys to impactful policies. Now that's a lot. And why am I tackling this exciting topic? Well, you know, a few weeks ago, I spent a day at the Capitol in um, Austin, Texas, while the legislation was in session, which is actually not very often. They meet only every two years. But while I was there, I discussed many types of bills that were being voted on. One is around, for instance, an education saving account that would give parents up to $10,000 to spend on their kids' education. There were also some bills impacting housing, size of lots, et cetera. And also we've heard in New York City and in California, the effects of rent controls legislation that are being questioned. And more recently, at the national level, legislators are talking about work requirements for able-bodied adults with no dependents to be able to get Medicaid or food stamps. So all public policies impact people and therefore business behavior. And I feel like the question is, how can human behavior be taken into account when designing policies? So to answer this question, I am sparking a conversation with Greg Skillies, a distinguished economist with a PhD from the University of Chicago, and he also taught at the University of South Carolina. Greg is recognized for his insightful works, including his book on intellectual property protection and a series of articles on innovation policy. He's also noted for his novel approach to non-traditional economic issues, particularly those involving incentives. So in his career, he's developed frameworks that analyze everything from athlete compensation to helping nonprofits maximize their societal impact. So buckle up, listeners, as we dive into an exciting conversation with Greg Scalise to give you the tools to take into consideration human behaviors when designing policies, products, events, or just making decisions in life. So Greg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Sylvie. I'm very pleased to be here today. I appreciate it. Well, Greg, this is probably very basic for you, but let's go back to basic and tell us what is the field of economics and perhaps particularly what is behavioral economics? Well, the way I look at it is economics is the science of human nature playing out through individuals' drives to create and capture value. Peel back the most complicated things in the economy, global financial system, digital network, market pricing, anything, and eventually you get to individuals making decisions to maximize what they value, whatever that may be, using their own perceptions of all the facts and their options. But that's a lot to think through. So traditional economics simplified things with the central idea that businesses maximize a broad measure of their own profits, while people maximize a similar broad measure of what's best for them. Using 
complete knowledge of all of the facts and all of their choices. And that leads to pretty clean outcomes where everybody makes rational decisions that lead to the best outcomes for all. Well, okay, people make rational decisions. So traditional economics assume that people are doing the best for themselves. And then we know, like just I know, like I'm very much into exercising and I know that everybody knows if they exercise 20 minutes a day, their life would be so much better, but they actually don't do it, right? Or they know if you don't eat more than one bread a day, you will really keep your weight and feel healthy, but they don't do that, right? So chime in here and explain to me what's rational behavior. We do see a lot of decisions that seem irrational and they have bad outcomes and even you know people undermining policies for no obvious reason. Behavioral economics takes on that gap by focusing on the individual. In particular, it relaxes the traditional economics assumption that everyone in the economy is rational and selfish. Now, those are actually the words of Richard Thaler, who won Nobel Prize for his work in behavioral economics. And he says that the goal of behavioral economics is to help people make the choices they would have made if they were paying full attention and they had complete information, unlimited cognitive ability, and full self-control. To me, what that means is that making economics account for, first, limitations around information. How much can people really gather and work with? And second, taking into account individual uniqueness, emotional, cognitive, psychological, cultural, social factors that influence what they really value and can influence their perceptions, sometimes even influence them, their perceptions to the point that, that they're really disconnected from reality. Okay. So if I get this, if I just play it back a little bit, like, so traditional economics really provides kind of the foundation, right? And the analytics and the frameworks that allow us to do some modeling and some predictions. And then behavioral economics then analyzes people's behavior and also tries to express the limitations of that rationality. So, so it tries to define what are the human biases or the human heuristics that drive decisions or would explain an economic outcome. Is that right? And so are the two approaches competing or are they complementary or how do they, or do they work together? Well, you know, that's a great question, Sylvia. I think you explained that very well. I think it's helpful to understand that economics is a very young science. It's been around for about 250 years. And if you look at an older science, physics, physics spent years or centuries maybe with assumptions like, you know, there's no friction. And the models, the methods, the theories, they weren't right, but they were very useful. They allowed people to make better predictions than they could have without them. And maybe, well, at least as importantly, they opened the door to all the incredible things that physics has done since that time. So economics, kind of uh, not quite as far down the path, it's similar, where behavioral economics doesn't really overturn traditional economics, as many have said, but it's a big step forward in addressing how individuals' uniqueness and limitations, they can lead to self-defeating choices, they can damage the economy, and even undermine well-designed policies, and how to prevent this. Okay, so let's get a little bit into it. So what are the top behavioral economics concepts that anyone who's designing a policy should keep in mind? What's the top one? And we'll dig into more in depth. Yeah, well, maybe the most relevant concept for uh, policy is the idea of nudge. And that's being used to address a lot of society's issues. And what it does is 
it focuses on how choices are presented to help people think more clearly through the information they have and what they value. When this works, it can help preserve individuals' freedoms while encouraging or nudging them to make the decisions that lead to the best outcomes for all. And that lets government take action while staying in its optimal role of facilitating an economy's individuals acting on their incentives. If we can explain this just a little bit more, like this idea that people's behavior can only be nudged. It can't be a radical change. Is that what you mean? So this is when you're designing a policy, you have to think, okay, how do we want to nudge, just change a little bit people's behavior instead of wanting to do something radical? Is that the concept? Yes, that is central to it. In fact, one of Richard Thaler's uh, taglines is, if you want people to do something, make it easy. And that often plays out in how how choices are presented to them. And default choices in particular are often taken. And that is something that it needs to be thought about a lot as policies are presented to people because often people can accept a default option without thinking about it just automatically. But the act of rejecting the default requires a little bit more thought. And that can make people, before they go to that, other choice that maybe isn't going to be as optimal, that little bit of thought can make them pick up more about, well, what really information do they have available to them? How does that play against what they really value? And is it good to do this? So that is the idea that it's not a matter of of tricking people, of manipulating them or forcing them, but it's a way of getting people to think better about what they know and what they're trying to do themselves. So yes, yes, that, 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 is, that is a lot of it. So if we go back, you know, to like an example of, a, uh, of an example, for instance, in Cook County in Illinois, there was a penny per ounce tax on sweetened beverages in 2017. And the tax was kind of supported by public health advocates who said, okay, this will help reduce consumption of sugary drinks and which is linked to obesity, diabetes, all kinds of health problems. And the idea was that the tax, the tax would generate what 75 million annually for the county and the revenue would be used for to fund public health program. But this was a major failure, right? People like were consuming, left the states to go buy soda drinks elsewhere or in other counties. And then ultimately the tax was repealed. Can you maybe kind of explain, is this, if the goal was truly to kind of change behavior towards sugary drinks, maybe that concept of nudge could have been taken into consideration when designing a policy instead of just imposing this tax. Right. Would that be a good example? Well, yeah, yes, actually, there's a lot in that example. And you know, to begin with, the, the tax seemed to have some, you know, reasonable, some reasonable force behind it. Yeah, that might have justified a nudge. People making better beverage choices that would lead to decisions that would be better for themselves when it comes to, you know, what beverages they would drink, their health would be better, there'd be less burden on society, partly because of their better health, probably because of the money that'd be raised. But a tax or any other mandate that makes a given choice more costly, harder, or even impossible is a restriction on freedom. And that's something that's much more than a nudge. 
And not just can only go so far as to change how options are presented. So people in turn change the choices they make in a predictable way. And it's interesting that despite the taxes reasonable goals, you know, that a lot of people might agree reasonable goals, it was repealed after four months. And so it didn't accomplish much. Sometimes a stronger mandate leads to stronger resistance. And a series of nudges like, say, you know, school cafeterias displaying healthier drinks in easy-to-buy locations, that might have been more effective and led to a bit of a snowball effect when combined with other nudges. As we've been talking about often on this show, government actions and directives impact people and companies. That's why government relations are a critical business function for mitigating risk and identifying opportunities. But really, it's often difficult to navigate and find expertise. So your company can now access the top public policy and government affairs experts for insights, advice, and advocacy work on demand. Invite you to visit polygage.com for a free consultation. Now, let's get back to the episode. So what are like the three most common biases that behavioral economic studies have identified that influence people's decision making and and that should be taken into account? There's a there's a whole list, right? You you mentioned like 12 or 15 of them. So what are what are the top 3 that would be easy for our listeners to remember? And anytime they're designing a policy, they could keep that in mind. Not just one. We can only nudge a behavior. So okay, that's one. And what else? What are the other three? Yeah, the other ever-growing list of, uh, of possibilities. Well, one of them actually is, is within nudge, and that would be called you know, framing effects. The idea being that when people are presented with the same set of choices, but the way the choices are presented can determine which one they choose, that is a bias towards the default or something along those lines. It can be more complicated than that, but that's the idea at the core. And so that is a very important one that is behind nudge. So I kind of cheated by using that one, but but that is one. And that's one I think that people know. That's one that actually people do like marketers, right? It's it's really something that is incorporated in how we market products and ideas. And we're always framing it in a way that will get people, steer people to the choice that we want them to take. Well, you make a great point because whether or not to nudge is not a choice. We're always nudging. The point is, well, let's realize that and be more intentional about how we're doing it. And there's some watchouts in that that we can talk about, but you know, we are always nudging. So let's make sure we're thinking about it clearly. Okay, so that, that that's one. Others are actually, actually a lot of them are very much within our, our common sense, the things that we're familiar with from our lives. We just don't think about in a very powerful way, which behavioral economics helps us with. One is herd behavior, the tendency of people to mimic what they see everybody else doing and follow general consensus. So without having seen that people are going down a certain path, they might have chosen another one, but they're seeing everybody go down that path and they decide, well, I'm going to go down that path. That is something that can definitely undermine making what people would call you know, the rational decision. A third would be status quo bias. And the idea there is simply that there's a tendency for people to keep things the way they are. And you can present people with a better option, but there's a hurdle there. It's like, okay, if it's marginally better, quite a bit better, does it compel people to get over that hurdle of making a change? So there's a bias towards not 
taking advantage of an opportunity, a policy, whatever it may be that's presented to them because it's not the way they've always done it. I think like you mentioned one that's satisficing, which is there's a minimum requirement from a search. And once that has been met, people stop searching for something better. How would you apply that? Well, actually, I think that's a, a very relevant one in this day and age of so much information and sophisticated topics in the news. So yes, that's the idea of uh, satisficing. And what happens there is that people want to inform themselves of what will let them make a good decision, but it can get a little bit overwhelming and exhausting. And so in their mind, there is a level they need to get out of how much information they need, and then they stop. Now, they may wind up with a dangerous amount of information, and that is not going to lead them to making the best decisions they can make, what we would call rational decisions, given you know that full opportunity to take a look at all of the options, all of the information, because they just have a little bit of the information there. And we do see that a lot. I think that talking to people, I've seen it a lot in, um, in the past couple of years with people's opinions about whether they should get vaccinations or not where there are very strong opinions that are based on getting a, a certain amount of information they're able to get to fairly quickly and then just say, okay, I've made up my mind and I'm done. And then dig in the heels and this is going to be my position throughout. Maybe it wasn't the one they would have made if they'd taken a little bit more time. Yeah, that's probably an important one to always keep in mind. So we have like this satisficing, this hurt behavior, the status quo bias where people want to keep the, the way things are. And of course, this nudge concept that you can't just mandate a big change. You always have to frame. And this is the, the framing effect. You have to frame choices in a way that leads people to the choice that you want. And also this, that it needs to be done in the, in the idea of nudging people's behavior instead of radically changing them. So those are like excellent. So what I'd like to do, if you're okay, is to do a little bit of a lightning round of different policies. And perhaps you could share, you know, what would be the associated human behavior to really take into account when defining the details of that policy, right? So for instance, right now, we, what's being discussed are the work requirements for able-bodied adults with no dependents for food stamps. So what would be the human behavior that we need to take into account into this? Okay, well, one that jumps out at me there would be um, the status quo bias, that rejoining the workforce now may improve my future, but I'm sticking with what my routine is, and that does not include a job. And so it's going to be a little bit difficult to make me get over that hurdle. So banning TikTok. Herd behavior. Why should I worry about personal risk and national security implications of something I see everybody else doing? Uh, the education saving counts, right? Giving parents the resources that they need uh, for their children's education. Well, that's that's a really interesting one, and a lot could go into that. I see that being right there with uh, framing effects. That sometimes people are used to having freedom from choice. It doesn't do them a lot of good, but it can lead to a comfort level. So it's kind of combining a couple here. That's a little bit of the status quo effect. But what I'm thinking about in the framing effects here, why I'm going to that right away is because if accepting freedom over my child's education is the default choice, then I have to justify to myself rejecting the opportunity to choose the education I think is right for my child. 
And having to actually work through that and recognize I'm making that decision can have some power that would overcome some of that inertia and desire to have that decision made for me. And it's a good way to think about it. And also, especially as these types of policies are being presented to the public so that people are actually taking advantage of those. Okay, there's one, removing minimum lot size or allowing coach houses to be built to add to the supply of housing options. This is something being discussed in Texas. Yes, and I think that there are similar things in other places too, especially as real estate prices are so critical. I see more herd behavior there that building a coach house on my property is not an easy decision. So I'd respond to the new opportunity maybe by looking to see what others are doing. And that can lead to an oversupply or an undersupply of property all of a sudden because people are all clustering in the same direction, whether they build or not. So vaccine, well, we talked a little bit about vaccine mandates uh, already and kind of that that uh, satisficing bias, right? Where you do the research and you're done and you're going with your found so far. And I see that a lot of people, including myself, actually. Retirement savings. Present bias. I, I'm not sure if we really talked about this one, but pretty intuitive there that that's where people have an inclination to spend now rather than in the future or they put more weight on satisfaction now or in the future. So, you know, why should I spend less now when I might win the lottery or the sun might burn out ahead of schedule or all kinds of other things can make spending now more enticing than spending in the future. I need some help to be convinced to actually take the step to save in the way that's going to be best for me and for everybody else. That's an important one. And that's true. That's people's behavior, right? We just think about the present and it's really hard to think about long-term, about the future, even five years, 10 years ahead. So one that I threw out there was, what if we mandated individuals to have kind of an internet passport to identify themselves as producers of content on a platform as we are questioning security, authenticity of information, and especially now with AI being able to generate content on our behalf and even copy our voices and our faces, et cetera. So what if we mandated individuals to have an internet passport to be able to produce and consume? The way you set that up, there's just a lot of power and risk out there in being involved in the content that's put out over the internet, right? So I think that people have gotten very enthusiastic about using the power of the internet to do what they feel is best for themselves and to promote what they value for society and all of that. And they can be very comfortable doing that. But when their name is going to be attached to it in the way that an internet passport can do, then suddenly herd behavior can take over again. And people are a lot slower to do what they see as being best for maximizing you know, what's good for them, what they believe is good for others. And they might be slow to do what would be criticized by the mainstream and wind up not being that counterbalance, but maybe just throwing in more weight behind what's already going on. Well, that kind of leads us actually to my my last question to you is like, so if we look ahead, how do you think that behavioral economics will evolve, especially I think with the new ways that human can interact, behave? And, you know, if you could share also how 
our listeners can expand their knowledge of behavioral economics. Yeah. You know, the challenge is to behaving as rationally as we can to act on what we truly value. It's always evolving. More so as the world's pace of change is accelerating, it's evolving more quickly and becoming a greater challenge. That challenge that motivated behavioral economics to begin with is a moving target. And it's when this moves faster and faster. And things like AI and generative AI in particular, they'll present you know, great behavioral challenges to people. And you know, people can subconsciously or consciously start seeing what AI tells them to say or do as a safe haven, an authority figure not to defy, but one where they can face less risk if they always go along with it and they can say, hey, you know, my decision was supported by this fantastic AI, so can't really blame me for making the wrong decision there. That can be a lot easier than saying, well, you know, I know that I don't have the support of AI on what I did, but I think it's right. It can make them more reluctant to gather all of the relevant information they can play it against what they uniquely and truly value, and use that together to reach their own conclusions of what they should do and act accordingly. And that's where you get closest to that ideal that traditional economics presents. So actually, you're saying that AI could really help people really go beyond their cognitive abilities and actually have more information to make the right decisions that are best for themselves, because it's so much easier to get, right? It would be easier to get all of the right information or to even evaluate the pros and cons of decisions. That's definitely the hope. The alternative that we need to be careful of is that it makes people more placid, more tranquil, more inert and willing to accept whatever AI tells them. And people have their own information. They have their own values. They need to keep thinking on their own and use AI as a tool and input to all of that, which is what you were saying, not a replacement for their own thinking. What is my information? Is my information that good? Is there more that I need to get? And by the way, let me think through my what I value again. What do I value for myself? What do I value for society? And how does it all play together for what's the best decision for myself and for all? And so I think that you know more than ever, people need to take a page from behavioral economics' playbook and keep asking themselves, Am I making the decisions that I would be making if I were paying full attention and using all of the information, cognitive ability, and self-control that I can tap into? So, well, I mean, I think this has been like really interesting conversation and it kind of just gave me the tools to uh, just understand a little bit better the world of economics and also how to just think about the design of public policy could really take those into account. And I think in the show notes, we will list all of the the different biases, human biases that should be taken into account. And you have a list of about like 15 and we'll include those in the notes. So thank you so much for joining me today, Greg. This was really great information. And uh, I think it gave me the really the tools to kind of go forward. So thank you. Well, thank you, Sylvia. It was a pleasure talking it through, and I really appreciate it. So, Okay, so in today's illuminating episode, we had the privilege of talking with behavioral economist Greg Scalise. And Greg broke down the essence of behavioral economics for us, highlighting how it really delves into the complexities of human decision-making. So we dove into the following, I think, five key concepts. The first one to remember is nudge. 
in behavioral economics, it involves like designing choices and decision environments in a way that influences individuals to make certain decisions without restricting their freedom of choice. So essentially by presenting options in a particular manner, policymakers or designers can, or marketers can subtly steer people towards making decisions that are in their best interest or align with the desired outcome. So this concept of nudging is really critical. The other concepts to keep in mind when designing policies that characterizes human behaviors are satisfying, and that's when people stop searching after having reached a minimum requirement that satisfy what they are looking for, and they will base their decisions on what they found and will not go further. The other is the present bias, and this is a human tendency to want rewards sooner, and humans have a really hard time thinking about the future and, and things that are happening really far ahead. The fourth one is herd behavior. And this is a tendency for people to mimic what everyone else is doing and follow the general consensus. We see that happen a lot. And finally, it's the status quo bias. So this is a tendency for people to keep the way things are. So when we design policies, when we design products, it's helpful to keep these behaviors in mind because we can account for them when we want to present new ideas, new product, or even design a policy that will impact behaviors. So that's a wrap for today's exciting episode. And remember, in fact, by understanding the way our brains work, we can make better decisions and create more impactful policies. So tune in next time for more conversations. Thank you for joining me, Sylvie Légère, on my Trust Your Voice podcast. I hope that this episode brought you a new way to think about your voice, how to trust yourself, and how to use your voice for good in your life and in your community. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. À bientôt.